Welcome to The Lex Factor, a lawfully good podcast where we'll brief you on the business of law so you can build a better practice and capture more billable hours. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Lex Factor. It's your host, Lauren, here. And Brad, your co-host. I switched it up instead of co-host Brad. Brad, Brad the co-host. Well, you can only do so much when you're co-host. I know. Keep it exciting. Front, back, I don't know. Do you want to introduce our guest today? That's like a special privilege. No, no, you can have that. You can have that (laughs) honor today. You're so you're so nice. I'm giving. I appreciate I'm it. giving. I'm a giving co-host. Very giving. Well, today, since I have the honor, we are actually here with Peter Giuliani. He is with Smock Law Firm Consultants. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Welcome. Nice to be here. Welcome. That's quite the applause. Uh, he deserves it. Yeah. It's a great well, guest. Peter, one, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah. And two, before we dive into today's topic, do you want to give everybody a little background on yourself, um, what you do for a living, your hobbies, embarrassing stories, kind of <laughs> wherever it takes you? I'll, I'll skip the embarrassing oh, stories if you don't on. mind. <laughs> I'm a law firm management consultant and have been doing it. I think my first law firm consultant was in a consultation was in 1969. Oh, wow. And so I've, I've been at this for a quite a while uh, doing a, a number of different things with law firms. One trend channel of it is the management issues, that sort of stuff. And the other channel is helping out with expert testimony on damage claim calculations and that sort of stuff. My training is uh, in managerial economics, oh, which wow. is my focus on my MBA at Cornell. So I'm basically just applying uh, microeconomic stuff hmm. to how to manage a law firm and also to help in valuation and other kinds of controversies. Which is probably a major gap. I can assume you found some pretty big gaps going into law firms and yeah. taking this approach. <laughs> I started out at Price Waterhouse in New York City in 1968. And their law firm clientele were, they're all the household names in New York. I moved over to Arthur Young, now Ernst & Young, uh, in 1980 and ran their law firm consulting group for a while. Over the course of the years, I've spent a lot of time dealing with very large law firms. But as I get further and further along, I'm really focusing on firms under 25 lawyers because I think they need the help. And they're the ones who are wrestling with today's topic, which is succession. Yeah. Because so many of those firms, they're, they're essentially at the end of their first generation. The founding partners are now looking to retire or move on or whatever. Real quick, I had a question. I was thinking about, you know, just your your career spanning so, you know, so much time. Have you seen a change in the types of issues uh, associated with succession planning from, you know, 60 Eight, you were saying all the way up to yeah. now. Are they the same type of struggles no, or have they they're, changed? They're, they're very different. They're okay. very different because right after the late 60s and the early 1970s and beyond, when I first dealt with law firms, they were all general partnerships, the way they were structured, which meant that every partner uh, shared joint and several liability with all of the other partners. And I can say I can use the masculine pronoun because there were no female partners in those mm-hmm. days. There were damn few female lawyers in those days. Mm-hmm. But the firms were, you know, like a, a hundred lawyer law firm was considered to be huge. That doorway to partnership was very narrow. Then along comes the limited liability partnership or LLC or limited liability company. 
And a lot of firms started moving toward that limited liability structure, which loosened things up a lot. And that also led to a lot of lateral movement from partners from one firm jumping ship and going to another law firm. And that whole free era of free agency fed law firm growth in the 70s. They were growing like crazy. And they've been growing like crazy ever since. So the issues were fairly simple in the older era because most of the law firms had a mandatory retirement age that was somewhere around 67 to 72. And when you retired from the firm, you received a firm-funded pension, which was the equivalent of 25% of your average high five years earnings for life. Oh, wow. With a 10-year surviving spouse benefit. Wow. Now, the first, <laughs> first, first time I got involved with law firm succession planning, I had this partner firm who at the age of 65 or 62 or something like that, divorced his wife and married his secretary, retired and promptly died. And here was a former secretary of the firm now making $120,000 a year for 10 years. And that was in the early 70s. That was a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I'd still be okay with that. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I won't complain. The thing is, the the thing is, is that is that that caused them to say, hey, you know, we got to do something about this retirement plan because Mm. we can't have this happening. About that same time, law firms started setting up qualified pension plans that used to be called HR 10 plans. And there were or Keo plans. They were they mimic what we now know as a SEP or an IRA. And so they were putting aside money to pre-fund partner retirements. And what's been going on now is the old unfunded plans, to the extent that they still exist, have been frozen. And everything is dovetailing now into you know, some form of qualified plan. Mm-hmm. The firm really doesn't have a continuing obligation to a retired partner other than what the partner has been able to put aside in the qualified plans yeah. and, and save on their own. But still, there are a few of these plans out there where the unfunded liability under them is huge. And I see more and more firms trying to figure out how to make them go away. When you're painting this picture of kind of the way uh, from a retirement perspective, does that dissuade individuals to be a part of the succession plan are they or has it not had an impact on succession planning at all um go along from the you know the good old days they they basically are all built around relationships with institutional clients mm-hmm. you know it used to be you go to any city in the united states and you would find maybe three sizable commercial banks and each one of those banks had its own favorite outside counsel. Very often, these law firms and the big banks cohabited in the same building. But those relationships are, succession planning was an automatic thing. You know, you became a partner by doing great work and gaining the attention of one of these institutional clients. And you spent your, your entire career working largely for maybe two or three large institutional clients, and that was it. So succession planning was something was built into the fabric of the firm. It's only since we've got clients moving around a lot from firm to firm and that we have uh, lawyers moving from firm to firm, taking their clients' relationship with them, 
that you have some of these issues where somebody is about to retire, somebody leaves, we have to figure out is how are we going to keep that client relationship? And a couple of layers of depth that you have to go through there. The one is client succession. That is, how do we hold on to the client? Two, talent succession is how do we continue to recruit people who are able to serve the complex needs of that client and train them and get him into position. Then, and only then, do you start thinking about how do we move somebody's ownership interest in the firm to another person in a younger generation. Those issues were very automatic in the old days. Now they're very problematic, particularly among smaller firms that don't have those longstanding institutional relationships and sort of take care of themselves. Which is why I'm really glad we're talking about this today, because the majority of firms these days are smaller. Um, And this is one of the areas that they struggle in. And we honestly don't talk a lot about it. You know what I mean? You don't know. There's not a lot of information out there. And so by the time you realize that you need to think succession planning, I don't want to say it's too late, but we all know that there is this trend in the industry where lawyers are working way beyond your your standard retirement age. And that's a lot to put on your shoulders at that point in your career, you know, figuring out your entire succession plan and how the heck do you even and tackle it. What do you consider? You know what I mean? <laughs> you say, they say today's 70 is <laughs> the new 69 and seven eighths. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, people are living longer and yeah. they're staying healthy longer and they are active longer. And when you've grown your own firm too, it's your baby. It's harder yeah, to right. pass it on, you know? Right. But there, there are emotional barriers to it. I have seen situations in where you have people who are sort of like develop themselves into hoarders. <laughs> you know, these are my clients and I'm I'm yeah. the only one who can deal with them. Yeah, I need to and, close out all these cases before I can retire. Or I'm going to hang on to these relationships and use them as uh, negotiating leverage on my way out the door. Mm-hmm. That's some of the seamier side of the succession planning, which is why I keep going back to saying that the sooner you start with it, the better off you're going to be, because then you know everybody is attuned to talking about it. Mm-hmm. And within the firm, part of the part of the firm culture is we we talk about it, and it's it's not a taboo subject. Yeah, it's a part and of daily business. We say to older partners, "Gee, here's this young up and comer. What are you doing to make sure that if something happens to you?" that up and comer is able to take over the relationship. So we don't lose the relationship Mm -hmm. among particularly larger firms. That's becoming much, much more common. The client relationships and they're sort of lining the team up with the client relationships. It is, is working fairly well in the smaller firms. As you point out, it's very hard to do that because the relationships are very much personal between Mm -hmm. the lawyer and the client. And you have to find ways to make sure that people are introducing younger lawyers in the firm to their clients. How much of a role does the client play in choosing the successor? For example, (laughs) do you let the clients dictate that for your firm or even have a say? Or do you, what is your advice with that? Like how much of a role does the client actually play in choosing? If you're doing it right, the client is aware of it. We are now seeing a lot. I am now seeing a lot of instances, several occasions. I've seen clients come to the firms and say, we don't think you have enough depth in your partnership. What are you doing to bring in new partners? Hmm. 
Interesting. And not only what are you doing to bring in new partners, but we also noticed that all of your partners are older white men. And where are the women and the people of color in the in, in the partnership? Yeah. That's becoming more and more important for all law firms, but particularly the smaller and mid-sized firms, the 25 lawyers. I firms. mean, really all industries these days, not right. even just yeah, law firms. Sure. It's, yeah. it's not just law firms. It's a, a trend that is affecting the client relationship too, because it's the clients are now much more in the driver's seat than they used to be. Yeah. We joke it's a buyer's market. Yeah. Yeah. They're basically telling the law firms, you know, this is how we want it to work. And we really appreciate your advice and we're happy to pay your fee and all that other stuff. But we need to see some of these other things. And if not, we'll go somewhere else because, you right. know, the Internet has made that extremely accessible. It's easy to find yeah. a backup if you don't like your the firm you're working with, your attorney specifically. They'll go right. somewhere else. Right. And there are plenty of other people knocking on the door saying, gee, how about us? Exactly. So going back to what you were talking about earlier, thinking specifically about law firms, you did mention it's never too early to start success succession planning. Excuse me. When do you start? You know, say you're a solo or maybe it's two or three people working at your firm. When is the right time to start putting that plan in place? Well, if you're the sole owner of the firm and you're not thinking about this, I'm, I'm going to say it somewhat outrageously, but it's close to malpractice because something could happen to you at any time. The state bar associations particularly are very um, focused on this, particularly with solos and very small firms, because they've had a number of situations where a solo practitioner or a small firm owner dies and Nobody knows what to do, where to find the clients. The, the first obligation of the firm is to the clients. And some of the state bar associations now are um, urging that just as though you would have an estate plan for yourself, mm -hmm. the law firms, they're stressing that they too need to have a success, a, uh, an estate, essentially an estate plan. What, what happens to their practice if somebody, if they die unexpectedly or become incapacitated? Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the line, you have to have the magic envelope that says something happens to me. Call this guy because he's going to take over my practice or he's going to come in and clean it up. But it's not just, you know, the, the client succession or the leadership succession. Um, you mentioned in the presentation you sent over as well, talent mm -hmm. succession, ownership, mm -hmm. ownership succession. Try saying right. succession seven times. Fast. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to butcher that one. Um, talk to me about talent succession. That's kind of like what we were talking about, bringing younger people into the client relationship and putting them forward. Okay. As opposed to just having them back in the office drafting stuff. Gotcha. Showcase, showcase your better young people to your clients. Yeah. That's uh, one of the ones in that article on uh, seven deadly sins of succession planning. I traced two law firms, one who dealt successfully with succession planning and the other who didn't. And the ones that dealt successfully with it was the, the, this one guy, and this is a true story. Uh, he used to do this two, two generations ago. One of his clients would come to him and he was basically at a state planning and uh, a state administration lawyer, very high end stuff, but their client might come to him with a corporate matter. And he said, well, you know, I'm not a corporate lawyer. I understand enough to be dangerous, but I got this kid in my shop that is so good. You're going to love it. And so they bring the kid over and they introduce him, and the kid does the work, does the corporate work. And all of a sudden now you've created two relationships with that client, one on the estate planning side and one on the corporate side. 
because most of these businesses that were clients of this firm were closely held businesses and family businesses. So eventually what you ended up with is all of the family succession business and the, the estate planning and that sort of stuff and all of the corporate business. Uh, that then leads into the, the corporations that are controlled by these families having labor and employment issues. So therefore, now you got to have a labor and employment department and so forth. So that's the kind of thing that the, the, the firm grew on that attitude of constantly showcasing younger talent to the clients. Yeah. And that's basically talent succession. Looking back at everything we've discussed so far today, if we you were to leave our listeners with just a, a couple tips that they can put into place to really start either thinking about their succession plan or, or to actually mm-hmm. get something in place, what would those tips be? Uh, number one tip, start early. Okay. Uh, which is, we've been hammering that. <laughs> number two, number two, don't hoard information either about the firm or about the clients. Yeah. The more generous you are in terms of sharing information with uh, younger people in the firm that you trust and that you want to bring along, the quicker they'll come along and the more able they'll be. Yeah, the easier it is. It's my analogy is what happens in a relay race if the second runner can't keep up? (laughs) You know, you've just passed the baton (laughs) and the second runner is going to lose the race for you. Internal communications uh, is, is the third tip working on, uh, I have a, two clients I want to identify, not by name, but identify by what I would consider to be really great practices. One firm is a, a litigation firm of about 25, 25 lawyers, uh, about 10 partners. And every Monday, there is a meeting which you are not allowed to cut. You have to be at this meeting. And it's called calendar call. Hmm. Every morning at Monday morning at 8.30, 9 o'clock, whatever it is, you participate in this meeting where everybody sits around and talks about all of the things, the cases that are on the docket in the firm that week. What has to be done with each of those cases and who's going to do it? What I suggested they do was to expand that meeting also to include an extra half hour where you talk about business topics. Who's falling behind in billing? Mm. Uh, who needs to follow up with a client to get a, a, a check in the door? Who's taking responsibility for training younger associate A yeah. or younger associate B? And what are you doing about that? What this is doing is getting these issues on the table. And when people talk about them, there's an accountability attaches to somebody every time that meeting happens because somebody's got a job to do on you know Monday afternoon having to do with that meeting. The other one is a uh, another firm, which is a largely estate and trust firm with some, you know, corporate. Uh, the only thing they don't really do is litigation, and they have an annual retreat. And the first order of business of the annual retreat is everybody says something about their retirement plan. Hmm. How much longer are they expecting to work? What are they doing about? gluing such and such a client to another. So they they have to have this discussion once a year. And we're talking about some of these partners are 40 years old and they're already talking about, they're talking openly to their partners about how much longer they think they're going to work. Because some of these partners don't want to work until 65. So I think that's great that that there's this willingness and this thought ahead to to plan and think, you know? Yeah. Now, these are the people who are thinking about the firm as an ongoing institution, not just an extension of themselves. Well, Peter, um, it was a pleasure having you today. I think those are some really great tips. We all uh, 
I think at the end of the day, law firms, they just don't think about succession planning and they don't do it early enough, you know, and there's so many resources out there for you to get information you need. Obviously, Peter can provide some help too. We provide help, but um, yeah, very insightful, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I I appreciate having the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. Yeah. And everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Lex Factor. And we'll talk to you next time. Till next time, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Lex Factor. Lexicon takes care of business so you can take care of law. Learn how to build a better practice at lexiconservices.com.